Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a celebratory piece for a celebratory occasion. It turns out that the tricentennial, the 300th birthday of George Friedrich Handel's water music will be happening this very July, 2017, because it was in fact 300 years ago in July that uh, Handel wrote, or at least we think premiered this piece for King George, his boss, on a barge in the Thames River. Really the most kind of original and unusual kind of entertainment. King George loved parties on the, on the water, and Handel supplied this amazing body of, I think, almost an hour and a half of music, the complete water music. And then King George was in his boat alongside this barge with 50-plus musicians, so it was a really big ensemble for the time. I assume lots of oboes and bassoons and trumpets and horns, as well as strings and harpsichord or some kind of continual instrument. Maybe not harpsichord, come to think of it. But it was a big celebratory piece, and the king was so delighted by it that he insisted that uh, Handel and the musicians reprise it a number of times. So uh, by all reports, they didn't get off their barge until about 4.30 in the morning. So a huge success from a, a regal English perspective. Uh, Handel, as you probably remember, was born in Halle, Germany, what used to be called East Germany for a while. Interestingly, it was there that he worked for the elector of Hanover, who was his boss, a man named George, who subsequently became King George. So wherever Handel went, there was George, his boss, either in Germany or in England in contradiction to the apocryphal stories of how Handel fell out of favor with George when he was the elector and had to win his favor when he was king, we all sort of assume now that Handel really much, pretty much stayed in good, the good graces of the elector and then the king pretty much throughout the period. He was a huge culture figure in his last years after moving to England, creating some 32-plus oratorios, 44 or 46 operas, plus all sorts of instrumental pieces and, and liturgical pieces and solo pieces. So a very prolific and remarkably successful composer of the time. Interestingly, born the same year as that other great figure of the high Baroque, Johann Sebastian Bach in 1685. Uh, Handel lived a little bit longer than Bach uh, until 1759, nine years after Bach. Uh, But those two are absolutely the towering figures of the Baroque period, and this, the water music, is one of the most celebrated and loved of all those pieces. So we thought, given the the 300th birthday of the piece, it would be a great way to start our concert with a suite from the water music. Now, Handel, early on, uh, after having performed the whole piece, created three different suites from the water music. The first one features oboes, bassoon, harpsichord, and two horns. The second suite, which is actually much shorter, features three trumpets. So the first suite with the horns, the second suite with the trumpets, and the third suite is kind of odds and ends. So we tend to gravitate toward the first suite, and that's in fact what all six of the selections on this program are from. So again, these are uh, six selections from the first water music suite, uh, beginning with the fantastic, very regal introduction and the opening allegro, and then going through a number of different dance forms, three of them, two or three
three of them featuring, I guess three of them featuring horns and the others featuring woodwinds and strings. Uh, we're using for ourselves a rather sizable orchestra. When we play Baroque music at the Albany Symphony, we usually like to do it with a very small orchestra, which would have been kind of more appropriate to the period. But since Handel used a really big orchestra and needed to project a big sound uh, on his barge, we've uh, opted for the full glorious string sound playing, albeit in Baroque fashion. So here now, six selections from the first suite of George Friedrich Handel's Water Music in honor of its 300th birthday coming up in July 2017. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony with a beautiful solo in the second little movement by our principal oboist Karen Hosmer, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. We're very excited on this program to present not one, but two very beautiful, uh, relatively new pieces, both by composers born, I believe, the same year in 1967. So I think that makes them just about to be 50 years old. The first is Christopher Theophanidis, a fantastic American composer who's currently a professor at Yale, a distinguished professor at Yale, the Yale School of Music, and also uh, one of the leading composers out at the Aspen Music Festival in the summer. So a very busy educator as well as a much-loved composer, we've only played a very little bit of Chris's music, but have featured a great number of his students and past students, uh, and so we were delighted to welcome him uh, this year. He's our mentor composer through a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. He'll be spending a good bit of time with the orchestra. We'll be making a recording of two works of his, not this work, but a violin concerto later this season and a viola concerto next season, and we'll have him on hand for all the rehearsals and concerts and, and talks and such. He's a lovely, gentle, very deep-thinking deep-feeling person. And uh, this is a piece that uh, I'm very excited to feature, not only because it's a a work for string orchestra with harp, which is a little bit unusual for the Albany Symphony. We don't play that many purely string orchestra pieces on our regular subscription series, but also because of the the subject matter of this beautiful piece. Chris has spent many years, from the time he graduated from college, visiting Japan as part of an American-Japanese sort of friendship-building program that he was lucky enough to be drafted into. So a great number of scholars and educators and scientists and doctors and artists go back and forth between the two countries, really getting to know the other culture and and getting to experience it firsthand in very meaningful ways to build cultural understanding and, and friendships. So Chris has been doing this and has made, I think, five or six visits to Japan in the last 15 years. And uh, on these visits, he befriended a gentleman from Hiroshima. And uh, when they were on one of their visits, uh, they were all taken to Hiroshima and taken to the the Peace Pavilion there, the very poignant commemorative space commemorating the, the dropping of the atom bomb. And uh, this friend of, of Chris's from, from Japan said, I, I, I don't know when or if you ever will be able to, but I hope sometime you'll be able to take some aspect of this and, and make a piece from it. So Chris kind of had this on the back of his mind, and he was invited to write a new work for a, a very elite, very small string uh, chamber orchestra, 17 solo strings called the Echo Chamber Orchestra. So he thought back to this idea of visiting Hiroshima, and he remembered the very distinctive aspect of this, which is this area where there are all of these origami cranes. And as you very well may know, there's this very touching, sad, and beautiful story of a young lady, a girl, Sadako Sasaki, who uh, was two years old at the time of the dropping of the atom bomb, and at the age of five began to suffer from radiation sickness 
and spent her whole youth basically in hospitals uh, being treated for leukemia. And while in hospital, she decided to undertake this this Japanese tradition. Uh, The idea is that if you fold a thousand origami cranes, you will get a wish fulfilled. So she folded a thousand origami cranes, and uh, then she still wasn't better. Her wish wasn't fulfilled. So sort of in, in the ultimate expression of hope, she started folding a second thousand origami cranes, and after 400 and some, she she died at the age, I believe, of, of 15. So a very sad story. But now people come from all over the world and bring their own origami cranes as a tribute to Sadako, and it's become a very touching and poignant way of honoring those people lost to the, the bomb. And of course, books have been written about this. There's a wonderful children's book about it. Her her brother, I believe, uh, wrote a, a touching nonfiction story about it. And so Chris decided somehow to take that as the initial idea for this beautiful, really 28-minute or so, substantial string orchestra piece. And he deploys the harp in a very prominent way. In fact, at the very opening, you hear the harp playing just these very simple notes that become the main material, really, almost of the whole piece. His idea is that the harp is sort of a stand-in for the koto, for a, a plucked Japanese instrument. And so it gives it this kind of wonderful Eastern spare feeling. And in, in fact, in our discussions, in our pre-concert discussions and all with Chris, he, he highlighted the fact that in, that in trying to write this piece, obviously he's Greek-American and so doesn't really have Japanese culture in his in his blood, but he has great respect and deep respect for Japanese culture, and he wanted to not write faux Japanese music or bad imitation Japanese music. He wanted to write a beautiful, substantial piece that pays homage to Japanese music and, and Japanese aesthetics. So um, he said, you know, what he did was he tried to write very spare music, and there, there's a lot of silence in the piece, and a lot of really beautiful clarity and, and precision to it. So the work is in three movements. The two outer movements, as he describes them, are really much more personal, kind of about Sadako, about hope, and very life-affirming. The middle movement is about the wind and about, you know, more more difficult, challenging things, but it's it's abstract music. But I, I was so struck in doing this piece, because I've only done one other piece, a piece of Chris's, is his very famous kind of breakthrough piece, Rainbow Body, kind of about Buddhism. I was very struck in this piece by just how beautiful the sound of his music is. Occasionally it has a little tinge of Puccini or of, of other really high romantic composers. It's in no way derivative, I don't think. But I found this to be a very poignant and beautiful and and ultimately very life-affirming piece. So here now, Chris Theophanidis' very recent piece from 2015, A Thousand Cranes, played by the strings of the Albany Symphony with our superstar principal harpist, Lynette Wardell. It is Chris Theophanidis' A Thousand Cranes, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The opening work on the second half of our program was another memory piece. These pieces, both uh, the Theophanidis, the Thousand Cranes, and this work by Derek Brumel, both deal a great deal with memory and with the power of memory. This is a work, actually, that the Albany Symphony performed once before, five or six years ago. And uh, we've been involved in a recording project of works by Derek Brumel for the last two seasons, this season being the third. And I really thought this was a wonderful piece and wanted to bring it back and make it the third work on this recording project. So it's a 
a bit of an Albany Symphony encore, which is kind of fun for us and for the musicians and me to see particularly a difficult, challenging piece like this one again and be able to have a little bit of a head start having performed it once before was very exciting. Derek is another very significant American composer. Uh, He, again, is just about to be 50 years old, very brilliant fellow and very inspirational fellow, undergraduate studies at Yale, graduate studies at the University of Michigan and really all over the world. He's a very accomplished performing clarinetist and has performed all over the world and uh, is the artistic director of the American Composers Orchestra in New York City, a wonderful treasure in America that champions American composers, particularly living American composers. Fascinating man, uh, very interested in rap and all sorts of indigenous musical styles, and he performs under the name of 50%. He's got a very funny video about how cell phones are taking over the world, if you want to check that out. Not 50 cent. 50%. Fifty percent. So this is a, a work that was inspired by by uh, Derek's reading of the letters of Bella Bartok. At the end of his life, the great Hungarian composer Bartok, like so many Europeans, fled Europe uh, during the war. I think in 1940, perhaps 41, uh, and he fled uh, from Hungary, where he has was already established as the, not surprisingly, greatest composer of the of the time, if not of all time. Uh, and he fled to New York and ended up in a little apartment in Queens with very little money and uh, with a lot of hardships, already not well, didn't realize at the time, but he was already suffering from from leukemia, a disease that in a couple of years would would kill him. But he's sitting in this little apartment in Queens and uh, writing these very poignant letters home to his sons who are still in Hungary and to friends and former students about how he can't wait to get home, about his longing for his native land and about, you know, crazy experiences on the subway, etc. in in New York. He um, was asked by Columbia University to teach composition, because he was such a distinguished man, and he refused politely, saying that he didn't feel composition could be taught, but he said he'd really like to teach piano at the school. Unfortunately, Columbia already had a piano teacher, so they declined Bartok as their local piano teacher. Uh, If you ask me, they probably should have made some room for him, being such a legendary figure. But instead, they did help him find some work in the Columbia University Library, uh, doing something that he loved to do more than almost anything else in the world, cataloging their very large collection, sorting and, and, and archiving, their very large collection of Eastern European folk music, which which they had collected, I guess, mainly through audio recordings and such. And he spent most afternoons in the Columbia University Library sorting this music, this great, great composer at the end of his life. Again, another very poignant story, remembering someone, in this case, the great composer Bartok. So Derek mentioned in, in his uh, discussion of the piece before we played it, that being a born and bred New Yorker, he's frequently asked to write a, quote, New York piece. And he always feels very uncomfortable about that because he's not sure what, you know, in his lexicon, a New York piece sounds like. But he felt that that this was one of these questions for this piece when it was commissioned, he felt that writing about Bartok and in a way his sense of dislocation and to a certain way of alienation but also fascination with the city and his longing for Hungary and his sitting in the Columbia Library transcribing music and all uh, was a very fertile ground for creating a a beautiful little three-movement piece about New York. So the work is called A Shout a whisper, and a trace. The first movement is called, uh, he has little Hungarian titles, but the the translation would be Americanization. And and in essence, it, it kind of is this. It's these wonderful little Eastern European folk song type 
materials, folk dance type materials, kind of interwoven with rather New Yorky jazzy materials. Uh, so that's the Americanization movement, first movement, very lively and actually very difficult to play, but very dancey and exciting to listen to. Second movement uh, is uh, translated as as night music. Bartok loved in the slow movements of his concerti and, and various pieces to write a kind of music which he described as night music, in essence just that, music that's evocative of the night and the mystery of darkness and all that. Lots of sounds of insects and birds and creatures and scurrying sounds and such. So this is a, a very s- slow, beautiful, haunting piece, the middle movement, night music. And the third movement, which is pronounced vague in uh, in Hungary, uh, just means end. It seems that, uh, I hadn't known this about, about Bartok, but the very last piece he wrote was a fantastic viola concerto. I know about this viola concerto. He he didn't quite really finish it, so it's left somewhat unfinished, but it's one of the towering viola concertos in the entire repertoire. Uh, but at the end, when he ran out of time because he realized he was about to die, before completely finishing it, he just wrote in the score, vague, which means end. And then he died the next day, I believe, leaving it rather unfinished. So Derek's idea in this last movement is the idea of, in essence, the ghost of Bartok and the ghosts of all those people who came to New York and have come to New York through the ages to live there, to work there, to escape from some kind of hardship elsewhere, wandering the streets of New York and how they really are, in essence, always there, there with us. Um, so that thus the title, A Shout, the first movement, this lively Hungarian dance movement, A Whisper, this night music second movement, and A Trace, A Trace of the Memory of Bartok. Here it is now, Derek Burmel's A Shout, A Whisper, and A Trace for Chamber Orchestra. It's performed by the musicians of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The last work on our program is one of my absolute all-time Desert Island favorite, favorite, favorite pieces in the entire repertoire. It's Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 4. I'm a huge Schumann fan anyway, but I'm a particular fan of his four symphonies. I really feel that they are so central to the evolution of romantic music from the era of Beethoven and Schubert to the much larger romantic world of Name Your Favorite Romantic Composer, uh, Mendelssohn, Berlioz. Liszt, Wagner, Strauss, Mahler. They are so beautifully evocative of what I think of the as the early Romantic period, much in the way that you know, a poet like Wordsworth uh, or the early English Romantic poets evoke this pure, beautiful, not yet heavily industrialized or alienating world of the late 19th century, but a sort of beautiful sincerity and, and honesty and nature worship and love of the old world mingled with this very optimistic sense of the wonder of the Romantic age. So this actually is a very confusing Using symphony in certain ways in that it's not technically the fourth one he wrote. 
you may know this, but I'll try to keep it brief, my little explanation of this. In 1841, when he was still a relatively young man, 31 years old, he wrote a first symphony, the famous Spring Symphony, and then he wrote a charming little kind of mini symphonic piece called Overture Scherzo and Finale, and then he wrote this symphony. So the symphony was written rather early in Schumann's life. He'd had these wonderful years right after marrying his true love, Clara Schumann. One year was devoted entirely to art song, and he wrote hundreds and hundreds of art songs expressing his his love for Clara. Another year was kind of given over primarily to, to chamber music, and he wrote some of his greatest chamber music. And this year, 1841, was is often called the year of the symphony because he wrote these three symphonic pieces as well as many other things. And the symphony number four, or as it was then known, the symphony, was performed once and then put in a, in a drawer and kind of forgotten for a while. And it was only 10 years later in 1851 that Schumann pulled it out of the drawer and did a great deal of additional work to it, of renovation work on it, and then released it as his fourth symphony. So it really wasn't his, his fourth symphony. It was his second symphony, but then reworked at the end, thus earning the number four. In a way, it's actually a very youthful work of Schumann's, and I think that's reflected in just the sonic brilliance of the piece. Schumann was trying to do very uh, unique things architecturally in his symphonies as well as in many of his works. You know, Beethoven, toward the end of his life, had really begun to show how the old architectural forms of music, things like sonata form, ABA sorts of forms, and theme and variation forms and such, and rondo form, where you have the same material coming back between different episodes, that that there were ways to do much more creative and unusual things rather than just sticking with the accepted kinds of forms. And so Beethoven's late works, his, his late piano sonatas, as well as his great late string quartets, which befuddled pretty much everybody at the time in the 18, late 1820s, just before he died, uh, really take the ideas of form in, in whole new directions, very strange, bizarre, epigrammatic, fugal forms that had never really been tried before. And Schumann, being a great disciple of, of Beethoven and a huge fan of his and very knowledgeable about him, uh, and also being this kind of romantic, whimsical, epigrammatic kind of composer who often favored art songs, short forms, little piano pieces, he, he well, very often people say he was uncomfortable in the large symphonic forms. I'm not sure that he was uncomfortable. I'm just not sure that he was that interested in them. So being the unique fellow he was, he decided to really play with them and nowhere more so than in this great symphony. It lasts barely a half hour, perhaps not even quite a half hour, and it's Schumann indicates it's to be played without stops between the movements. So it's really one continuous fabric in essence. Uh, it does maintain the usual symphonic shape of a, a big dramatic opening movement with a beautiful slow introduction, a slow, very uh, whimsical and beautiful little serenade second movement, uh, actually smaller and lighter than most slow movements in symphonies of the day, but, but a slow movement, and then a third scherzo, a, a, a sort of dance, three-four kind of movement, and a big dramatic finale. But Schumann does all sorts of things to, because the piece is very compact, and because he wants it played continuously, to in essence, instead of making each of these movements its own form, to really build like a super architecture out of it. So in a certain way, when you listen to this piece, you can almost imagine that the whole first movement is like a, an introduction, an exposition to the piece, and the materials are laid out. And the second movement is like, and the second and third movement, actually, the, the slow, beautiful serenade and the third movement, the dance movement, are almost like expansions. They use much the same material. In fact, the introduction to the first movement reappears in the middle of the second movement and the third movement. And then the finale 
is like a recapitulation because the themes that are revealed in the finale actually grow out of the themes of the first movement. So he's used thematic material, melodic material, to bind these four movements together and to make them, in essence, into one super movement. He also, in his renovation, 10 years after he wrote the piece, he also did magical work in creating fantastic transitions from the introduction to the first movement into the body of the first movement. So it's as if the main theme of the first movement is being just kind of evolved out of the material of the introduction. And and the same thing happens at the beginning of the last movement, one of the great transitions. There's a slow, powerful introduction to the fourth movement that then evolves, that that, that gives birth to this magnificent, unbelievably joyous finale. Schumann said early on that he'd call this piece Clara, and he would celebrate his love with, uh, with flutes and oboes and harps. There are no harps in the symphony, and actually at one point he even thought of putting a guitar into the slow movement in the serenade. There's no guitar in it. That would have been really radical. But this beautiful little slow movement, the serenade, is a a solo for the oboe and the solo cello. And it does have this wonderful, almost minstrel-like, magical-like, almost Renaissance feel to it, which is quite extraordinary. And the thing that I probably marvel at the most in Schumann's symphony, and nowhere more so than in this symphony, is Schumann's use or or treatment of rhythm. And and I think this is born of his deep study of of his two immediate predecessors, Beethoven and Schubert. Beethoven, you know, was so great at basically taking a a theme or a motive and generating all sorts of material, rhythmic and otherwise, from it, and great rhythmic dynamism and drama from little rhythmic materials. Schubert tended to favor bigger, longer paragraphs, you He loved long, flowing, lyrical melodies. But under that, he would often put kind of almost like unrelenting rhythms. So my estimation is that Schumann kind of, in a way, is kind of an amalgam of Beethoven's rhythmic intensity and Schubert's rhythmic constancy. Uh, And so you'll find, particularly in the outer movements, that the rhythmic vitality and the propulsion of, of the rhythmic materials is one of the things that makes this symphony so absolutely thrilling. So here it is now, the final version, uh, the version that most uh, people know, although the f- earlier version is, is available. Schumann's Symphony Number no. 4, the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.